All right, let's get this drop pod on the ground. Hello and welcome to Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States of America. Welcome to Season 4. This is the first episode of Season 4, Episode 30 in our show timeline altogether. I am Tim, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Lavelle and Carlo. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, Tim. Hey, good evening. So we've had a um, kind of a rough start to 2020. A lot has been happening in the last six weeks or so since the New Year holiday. But here we are, uh, middle of February 2020. Um, let's briefly take a look back in our hobby progress section and talk about what's been going on in the last month or so uh, in the hobby for each of us. And uh, we'll start with Carlo. What's been going on? Um, I've been uh, doing a few projects, actually. Uh, I built some stealth suits. I may have talked those, talked about those last episode. Um, I built, uh, I've been building crisis suits since the new uh, supplement was rumored and so we got some early access to some of those uh, stratagems, and then when it dropped uh, the other day, I uh, kind of decided on a list that's built around like six crisis suits that tend to fill a similar role as like almost like a centurion squad. Um, they tend to be pretty tough now and uh, put out a lot of shots. So um, I've been uh, building those, and then I've been building um, some Nova L's uh, for and the team. Uh, each one of us is tasked with building a set of L's before March 1st. We gave ourselves a little due date so we can have them done before the next tournament that we're running. So um, other than that, uh, you know, pretty, pretty normal stuff. Uh, I don't know. I think that, I think that's it for me. Um, Has anybody sung to you the Nova L song? There's a Nova L song. Nova L, Nova L, <laughs> Nova L, Nova L. Please tell me we're going to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just couldn't help myself. What has sorry. happened in the last month? I just couldn't that help I, just, <laughs> I just couldn't help myself. Couldn't help myself. Um, Lavelle, I think we need to check his temperature. But uh, <laughs> um, I just, you know, I've been reading that story. We uh, we wanted to read Sacrifice, a little short story. Um, uh, new uh, ITC missions came out, so I've been acquainting myself with those. And uh, I played a game today with Nicholas from Red Caps. And uh, his Raven Guard versus my Tau, and we ended up with a dead even tie. So it's a really good game. I got to play uh, with the new Farsight Enclaves rules and strats, and had a pretty good list. I ran um, two Missile Pod Cold Stars, a Cyclic Ion Commander, um, Farsight himself, uh, two uh, battalions of Breachers, and uh, the Crisis Suit Bomb with two Riptides with Velocity Trackers and. Uh, ATS, so it's a pretty solid list. Uh, I think I'm missing maybe, uh, yeah, Codger Fireblade and 21 drones. So a little light on the drones for a normal Talus, but it worked out because the Crisis, I actually ran Crisis Bodyguards, not Crisis Suits, so they're able to uh, take on wounds for the characters as well. If I, you know, sometimes like with Tau, it's very, you have to be very precise in how you move, and sometimes I don't always move perfectly. You know, I am human, so it's like, it's nice to have the bodyguards there if I end up accidentally moving out of my drone's range to, you know, take on some of those wounds. So, Lavelle, what's up with you? So um, I just finished competing in the Burks Winter Blast, and I had a blast. Dun, dun, dun. It was a great game. Um, I ended up in 12th place, which was, you know, I think there were 40, 
six teams. And at the end of the first game, we were second from last, but we ended up in 12th place. And it's interesting. I played this uh, 18th wraith list, uh, as, and my partner was an Iron Hands um mostly dreadnought list and it was really really good and i really got a feel for it and i dropped that first game mainly because i wasn't paying enough attention that's my biggest problem in tournaments i dropped my first game and then by the second game i've got my rhythm i got to get better at that but it was a really good game and i did a lot of practice with that i am also in the process of building up my sisters um sisters of battle not sisters of silence my sisters of battle army and i haven't done any building yet i'm still collecting a couple of pieces i'm almost ready to go with that i have a question for the two of you have either of you read the ritual of the damned or the greater good book yet i don't i do not have either of those books i'm three books in i don't don't have four and five yet so i've been watching like battle reports and things and it's i, I have to tell you I, i'm really amazed at what games workshop is doing and how they are adjusting the game incrementally through these books next is coming out um what is it called saga of the beast which is going to have space wolves and orcs that was the only two that i know of right now but i'm really really excited about what's going on along the meta and the the adjustment of the narrative I, i really like what the way they're doing things um i am also on high high super ultra high alert for this new custodies books that's in the wind have y'all heard about that? I just read some about some of that yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're speculating. I don't. I, they're bringing out a new Custodes books. I have no idea what they could put in it. I don't, so a lot of people are speculating that they're going to bring the Talons of the Emperor back together, and this is anticipation of the new release. Um, Watchers of the Throne has a new book in that series that's coming out, and they're releasing the two characters from that book out in models. Games Workshop is doing it. It's not even a Forge World piece, it looks like. And we think that they're going to bring the Talons of the Emperor back together, and they might introduce that into the overall um, narrative with this a new Custodes book. It's been really, really under the radar. And I saw a, a video report that talked about a shipping label to something that went to Australia. And I was like, man, what are these guys, spies? So it's supposed to be coming out. I'm really, really excited about that. I had a chance to play with Colin against my custodies. He had a chaos. Um, I can't remember what chaos faction it was. He had a pretty good chaos list, but he hadn't played against my custodies. And I won that game, but it was a really, really tactical game. I, I put my custodies aside, but I really love playing them a lot. I've got great armies. I'm, I'm really happy to say that I'm excited about all the armies I have. Well, I think you have all the armies. So That's what you know. I said. I'm excited about all the armies I have. He's excited about all the armies he has. All the armies. But, you know, have you guys also noticed the adjustments that they, they've been making to the that they're making to the uh, Imperial Guard? What's been going on there? So I, I think the Scions, um, they got a, a specific set of special uh sub-factions, if you will, like almost like, and they, they're really, really good and they do different things. I think it came, I'm not sure if it was in greater good. It had to be in greater good. It had to be in the greater good. So it's supposed to be in there. So, you know, the towers in greater good, we knew that. But the other thing that was in there was this adjustment that's coming on to the um, Imperial Guard, Astra Militarum. And it's really interesting because, you know, the Scions used to have their own army. They used to have their own flavor and they kind of got subsumed in the over Astra Militarum, but this gives them 
different um, abilities, almost like their own regiments. And it's really, really good. So, you know, I tell everybody, stay up on this stuff because next thing you know, you're across the table from a player. You don't know what's going to be coming at you, and it's coming at you. Yeah, that's why I started collecting the uh, first three books of the um, Psychic Awakening series, even if they don't directly pertain to the armies I'm playing. It is always good to keep up with what's happening, especially with regards to the narrative, which we talked about in the last episode, where, you know, clearly these books are filling that... Uh, that gap between 8th and ninth edition with regards to the uh, the storyline, the overall progress of our tale in the 41st millennium. So uh, the greater good, it's clear from the cover that the Tau gets something in there, but the other people that get something in is the Astro Militarium and Gene Steeler Cult. And what the Gene Steeler Cult got in there seems to be really, really it makes a difference. They were, I thought they were already a Trixie army, already to play against, but it looks like they got some other things that made them even better. My own hobby progress was very limited in the last six weeks or so. Things have been extremely hectic. I did play in the Apocalypse game at uh, Red Caps, which was really great fun. Um, we did get in a game or two of Ethereum. Uh, both Lavelle and I played, and Carlo and I played some Ethereum. I got in one game of AOS last week against Carl, which was wonderful, and... Uh, you know, Lavelle and I uh, did some commentary on a live stream of a tournament, which we'll talk about in the next seven segment of the show. But my real hobby progress has been very limited to uh, reading of late. Um, I haven't been able to sit in my painting room and get any work done in quite a while, and my opportunities to game have been very, very limited. But I have been uh, reading a good bit. I am on uh, book nine, book nine of the Beast Arises series, and I have started to make my way through the first Psychic Awakening book as well as uh, just recently read the short story that we're going to talk about today in our From the Stacks section, which is a Grey Knight story by Ben Counter. Uh, but in the coming weeks, I see my schedule slowing down just a little bit, so I do hope to uh, get back to a you know at least one game of 40K a week kind of a schedule. We'll take a short break. We will come back with Section 2, Tactical Upload. Stay tuned. Section 2, Episode 30, Season 4, 2020. This section is Tactical Upload. We are changing our focus for Tactical Upload here in Season 4 to focus more on the competitive side of the Warhammer 40,000 hobby universe. And this uh, this episode, this week, this month, can't really say this month anymore because we're trying to do more shorter episodes more frequently, but let's just say this episode we're going to take a look back at the recent Red Caps February RTT tournament that Carlo was the TO for. How did it go, Carlo? It was great. Uh, we had a really great turnout. 15 people showed up. Um, I was actually a like kind of a support TO for Jake, who was actually running it, and... Uh, I was originally going to play, but we ended up with an odd number of people, so I dropped. So, you know, I'd hate to see if uh, somebody drove down and had to take a bye. But um, next one I'm going to get in, I'm going to play, and I'm going to hopefully win. I don't know. We'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it went really well. Um, Had good feedback all day. Um, The one thing, you know, I talked about us making some Nova L's. I think that's the one thing I really want to see for the next tournament um 
uh, you guys did a great job of the commentary. Uh, we had a lot of good feedback on that. And I guess we could count that as our first recording of the year. Right? That's true. That is true. That yeah. does exist on, yeah. on YouTube as a recording. That's true. For those listeners that missed our live stream session, we, Lavelle and I, uh, did do the commentary of the morning rounds on Twitch at uh, twitch.tv slash redcapscorner, where we will hopefully be able to uh, stream and commentate uh, future runnings of the uh, Redcaps RTT series of tournaments for uh, Carlo and company. It was good fun, and uh, Carlo and Nick took over in the afternoon when I had to split, and uh, I thought I thought you both did a really great job, Carlo, of uh, of, of continuing, uh, you know, keeping the keeping the feed going, and you know, serving up some really really good opinion on what we were seeing at the at the, uh, the streaming table. Thank you. Um, I did forget to record some of it, so it won't be kind of uh, on the backlog. But we did we missed like the top half of the third game. But I I, I saw you know it was fun. It was good to see some really excellent top uh, table play from a lot of the guys that were on stream. And I feel like even just watching it and commenting on, it, I still learned a lot about the game. So it was, let me. It. I want to say that commentating on the game was a little bit different. I watched a lot of battle reports, but when you're up in the booth. <laughs> And you were looking at the recording, and you can see like the punch in the face coming. <laughs> like we were talking about about the possessed. Like, oh, here they come! This is not going to be good. Here they go! Ooh. Ooh! And so, you know, if you're if you're watching the game and you don't know the ins and outs of all of these other armies, you don't actually you can't actually tell what's going on and what the significance of it is. It was a, a real good experience. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I learned I learned a ton, especially in that first game. That that was great because Lavelle, being a Necron player, was able to contribute a lot of really cool opinion on that that Necron list and uh, how it how it worked. And it was uh, it's like were, I've been in this situation before yeah, as a Necron yeah. player, and uh, <laughs> I, I've stood in those shoes. <laughs> I've stood in those shoes. I have. I swear, it's crazy. Yeah, but it was really good fun. Um, Carlo, talk about how the day unfolded uh, tactically with regards to lists and how things moved in terms of who got to the uh, the, the top table and won. I think throughout the day, you know, uh, we had um, a few players that were very strong. Uh, Carl, of course. Um, we had uh, Zach, who's new to the area, but definitely a veteran player. Uh, plays Harlequins, won our last tournament that we had in December. And... I think, uh, yeah, the gentleman's name was Jesse that was playing a, a Imperial Guard um, kind of castle list with uh, tank Lehman Russes, Manicors, a uh, bunch of infantry. Um, he did very well. We had a uh, Imperial Guard uh, Blood Angels, I want to say Admech Soup list, if I remember correctly. It might have been, maybe not the Admech, but I know there is a, oh yeah, it's definitely uh, Admech, Blood Angels, and then possibly some Guard in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we had some really well painted, uh, armies and we actually did have a tie for, uh, first place in the painting competition. So we gave away, yeah, we gave away a few prizes that day. So we gave away three. Uh, if you've never been to one of our tournaments, we split the prize pool. Everybody, it's a $15 admission. Uh, we split that prize pool 40% for the winner, 30% for best painted and 30% for best overall. So that's a total score combined. I believe Carl ended up winning first place, obviously first round he played Necrons. 
second round, uh, he played against another Necron list, and the third round, he went against the Imperial Guard castle list. Now, in that game, uh, like a week prior to that game, I had actually played Carl one-on-one, and you'll hear his interview later on in this episode of the podcast where we talk about his list, and I had learned some of the tricks that he planned on bringing in this tournament and to watch, like you guys were talking about earlier, watching them unfold on the camera um, while you're watching the game being played. You can you see what's coming. And uh, if you listen to the commentating that we did on that match, we're basically talking about exactly what ended up happening, which was Carl's list got in a position to wrap some of the guard up front, and it just kind of enabled him to control the center of the board. Uh, which is very, you know, he plays that possess bomb list, um, which I'm sure a lot of people listening know about. If you don't know about it, it involves, uh, and he has a different variation of it, but it involves um, a few tricks that uh, disable your opponent's shooting in a number of ways, and we'll talk about that later in the episode. Um, Other than that, I thought everybody played rather well. We didn't really have any, no uh, conflicts, Throughout the day, you know, as if you're running an event, you expect there to be some sort of um, disagreements, but nothing really. Did any interesting rules questions come up that you can remember? I know there is a rule where recently they declared that vehicles, and this was at the end of the year last year, so I'd say recently, but uh, vehicle flying vehicles can't land on terrain that they their bases aren't completely sitting on, right? You can't have overhang, but um, apparently like riptides can do that. So, which I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Just they're is, that is that rule for, for flyers or flying or vehicles with fly vehicles with the fly keyword. Okay. Okay. And that's how they can get around it. Yeah. Because they're not vehicles, right? Are they? Um, no riptides are monsters. They're monsters that fly. Yeah. So I think it's vehicles and I forget what the other keyword was. So Carl won the day. What was the last place? list let me try and remember who won last place because we gave it out oh yeah so we did in, in addition to those three prize pool gifts that we gave out um as the podcast we chipped in and bought two 30 gift cards for people so uh the one of them was last place and the other one was dead middle was that well received at the <laughs> tournament Did everybody get a kick out of that i think yeah we got a good chuckle out of that one so uh, uh dead middle i think went to kyle if you remember him, he was the uh, Eldar player, um, one of the beast. I think he's one of the Beast Coast guys, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, last place, I want to say, went to somebody we know. Uh, some of the armies that were struggling were obviously armies that weren't designed to be competitive. We had a few players there that aren't traditionally ITC players. Just a few, like a lot of the people that showed up did uh, play in the ITC. A Tau list um, that actually ended up losing all three games, um, but not largely. I mean, he had some good points up there. Um, we, I think the he had some very hard matchups. Like I know the th- the three guys that he played are very tough players. Um, he ended up going against uh, Grant's Death Guard round one. He went against that soup list I was talking about earlier, round two, which can hit you very hard with that uh, Blood Angel Sanguinary Guard. And then 
he went against Kristoff's Eldar round three, which, you know, Kristoff's got a very, very great looking list and I mean, great looking army. And then he had a pretty solid list. He had some, uh, uh fire prisms and, you know, do the shenanigan with the shooting. You only need one in line of sight and then all three of them can shoot. Cut. So, uh, but it, they, it, they had a really good game. I was watching it and it looked really close. So in the top of the list, you have uh, Carl, who's running a Sinch, Marcus Sinch, uh, uh, Alpha Legion possessed, uh, Ale Dari in second. These are total points. Um, the soup list, one third, that Astra Militarum list I was talking about came in fourth, um, and then so on. So it seemed we had a pretty good uh, spread. And the really surprising thing about the day that I didn't bring up earlier was the fact that no Space Marine players at all showed up. Interesting. Which is bizarre. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that was my next question. I was about to ask what Space Marine faction did the best. Interesting. Yeah, just that Blood Angels detachment. But that's all. That's all. Yep. I'm surprised there was no like straight-ahead Iron Hands list or anything because they've been really solid recently. You know what's really funny, Tim? Hmm. This time last year, all three armies that you were playing were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're all really good. Now they're all top of the map, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I need to start playing more seriously is what I should take this from this message, yes. You're actually being forced to play more seriously. <laughs> I think that is, I think, the intention behind GW's Psychic Awakening campaign was to force him to play more seriously. What can we do about this Tim guy? Yes, yes. <laughs> He's been sending us letters for years. Let's give him something in response. <laughs> Carl, what was it like? Because you've been on the other side, being a TO. Because it, it looks like it's a lot of work. You know how much I like to abuse power. Yes, I do. So, <laughs> from that perspective, it was fantastic. <laughs> um, on the other hand... um. I'm really, really happy that we had that streaming set up. Otherwise, I would have been terribly bored. Because it's great walking around, watching the matches, but then to be there for 12 hours doing it without any sort of thing to wrap your mind around, I feel like could have been a little bit, you know, just kind of... Mind-numbing? Some mind-numbing, yeah, exactly. But the... Having that streaming set up really it was great because I'd walk around the tables a little bit. I'd come back, you know, switch the audio. We were switching the audio back and forth. So, like, when we're not there, the listeners could listen to the players talking. And then when we jump on, we could chime in. So it was great. I really like that. Um, uh, you know, I usually like to win uh, win all the prizes, but I didn't get to do that that day. So, uh, you know, that's the only downside, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you guys like being the uh, streamers? I, I liked it because of, I was at a tournament without the pressure. Why am I losing? <laughs> Which place am I in? And, you know, I like to, you know, be even though, you know, you're at a tournament. You When you're at a tournament, you're playing your game. You might see other people, but you get a chance, more chance to walk around and ask, hey, how's it going? What are you doing here? What's this army? So it was real. it was a lot of fun. Do you think you guys like could go all day, all twelve hours? Do you think it's too much? I I I think one of the things that it, it would depend on the differences in the armies. So if we made sure that the streaming table were always so it's gonna be three games, 
there are no repeats of armies on the table. I think that would have made it more interesting. So, you know, okay, now this is what we're looking at. Because sometimes the action isn't at the top table. Right, like some of those top table players are, you know, if they if they come up in a match against someone that the skill level skill level is at such a disparity that it's not even a contest, you'd almost rather see a more evenly balanced game or something right. like that. Or some sort of surprise. I enjoyed doing it. It was a, definitely an educational process for me, having you know, not gotten too super familiar with all the Necron stuff in Game 1, and there was some Eld- Eldar stuff that I wasn't too super familiar with in Game 2. So having, you know, I'd asked the store to provide all their store copies of all the uh, codexes and whatnot, so just having that big stack of books nearby was really helpful, and it was, you know, it forces you to look up stuff that you normally wouldn't look up, you know, and it forces you to think about situations that you don't find yourself in, not playing those particular armies, you know, and all the while trying to keep it somewhat entertaining for our listeners. You know, it was a good, it was a really good challenge. I enjoyed the heck out of it. You know, the downside of doing it is that, that you're not playing, but also to Lavelle's point, the upside of it is that it you're not playing, you know, so you are enjoying the tournament in a very different way. It's like a more active spectating of the tournament, which was a lot of fun, but at the same time, you know, it is you know, I could see myself playing in these tournaments as well. So it's, it's probably going to be a balance of those, uh, of commentating and playing, et cetera. You know, I can dig it. But it's yeah. hard not to scream across the table. Look out. It's yeah, coming right, you. right, right, right. It's not what it looks like. You know, it's, 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 it's funny. You, you know, you're watching it and, um, you're trying not to tip people off. It's, it's just a, it's a funny dynamic. Certainly. It was a it was a great it was a great way to spend a Saturday morning, I'll say that. It was really good. We will take a short break. We will circle back with future history coming up next. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Section three, future history, a continuation of our tradition of taking a look into the fluff of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Today we're talking about Tau Ethereals. Carlo, are Tau Ethereals sort of at the forefront of your mind as part of the overarching Tau story, the story of their race? Are they a big deal? They think they're a big deal. They certainly know, do. Uh, <laughs> as a Farsight player. Right, so now we're going to diss the Ethereals. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I started the opinion section of this section too soon. <laughs> Hey, if you didn't want opinions, you shouldn't have started it's a Philly-based podcast. It's the wrong you know show, wrong city. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, you know, Tau, Tau Ethereals are supposed to be these, uh, they're the leaders of the Tau Empire. They are the, um, they're almost like evangelist type, you know, uh, leaders and they end up uh, looking to outsiders as almost like a god, right? Similar to like the emperor, but not, not, we know they're not really as powerful as the emperor, but um, in terms of a list, um, they can be really great in terms of functionality in a Tau list. Uh, they can, they share their leadership, and they've got a few powers that act almost like psychic powers, which Tau do not have. So they can be 
they can change a list a lot. Hmm. The way that they work. Interesting. Let's talk about what they are and uh, where they kind of come into the Tau storyline. Um, the the Tau society is caste based, right? Meaning there are different groups of Tau, and there's very little movement between those groups within the race, right? It's um, so almost like a class system, I guess you could say, but but we're calling it a caste system um, as as in an attempt maybe not to rise one above another to maybe mean that they all kind of share an equal responsibility in the success of the Tao society but so there are four there are four uh, castes as, as we know them there's fire air earth and water and the fifth is this caste of the ethereals uh, who are the only caste that really does kind of stand above and aside the others because they are the ruling kind of the ruling elite caste of the Tao civilization. They are also called Celestials. I've seen them listed that way before in books and in uh, codexes, etc. Uh, they are the, both the, uh, the spiritual and political commanders of Tao society. They take advice from senior members of the four other castes, but Ethereals, Ethereals always have the last say in making big decisions, guiding and advising their society to serve the greater good. And I think that greater good phrase, obviously, with regards to Tao is super important, especially when talking about the Ethereals, because they are, as Carlo, you had said, the, uh, they are the evangel evangelists for the greater good, right? They're the ones who are spreading the good word of the greater good within the society and without the society, um, outside the society. Uh, they are commander-in-chiefs, they are bishops and the CEOs of Tao society. Before we before we go on, I need to jump in here with a question. And Carlo, you might. When you are born, are you born into a caste, or do you? Is it or do you grow up and it's decided which somehow which caste you go into? Uh, that's a good question. And to be honest, I'm not really well versed on Tao lore uh, yet. Um, I actually have been getting more interested in it since this greater book, uh, good book came out. Yeah. Because one of the things that makes it as, as we read about the tile, you know, we think about, uh, parallel structures that we may have in modern day society, but it's my understanding. And I'm not 100% sure again, that it's really not like that because, uh, the, 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 the cast that you belong in will reveal itself. I think that's what it's like. You're not born into the earth cast. Your skills and your talents determine this is what you're better at. And so you move to the earth cast. And I know this from the old game Fire Warrior. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, it, you know, it's it's interesting as we try to draw parallels. You know, they're, the, the Tau society is really, really different. And the role that the Ethereals play, I mean, these guys are out there on the battlefield with nothing but a stick. Mm -hmm. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but that's what, it that's what it seems like. What yeah. do we do? Shoot that guy with the stick. Yeah. All right, Tim, what else we got yeah, about Yeah, let's talk a little bit about where they came from. Um, the Celestial Tau rose to power in Tau civilization in the 37th Terra Millennium during an intense caste versus caste civil war that was tearing apart the Tau society. These uh, strange-looking ethereals appeared amidst a long-standing siege during this war and used their undeniable charisma to bring together several caste commanders to begin peace negotiations. Here they established themselves as kind of this, uh, you know, someone really in communion with the greater good, bringing people together. Uh, this was the birth of the Tao devotion to the concept of the greater good. 
uh, it started all, it all started with they're able to kind of negotiate their way out of this civil war. Uh, this message of unity quickly spread throughout the Tao colonies, and within a year, the war was over, and the United Tao began expanding their civilization at a rapid pace. The ethereal caste, just like the other four castes, is divided into rank, into ranks. At the top is the ethereal high council, which rules the Tao Empire from their homeworld of Tao. There is no official leader of this council, but it is guided by the voice of an ethereal supreme, a council member with wisdom and experience who has gained the respect of his peers on the council. I said his peers on the council there. I am not sure if there are female Tao ethereals. I have never seen any. But I have I... to look that up. I don't know if that's the case. It seems like there should be, because I know that Tao, in a lot of the Tao writings, females are represented equally as males, but I don't know about the, the council. I'll have to look that up. Continuing on, they are inspirational leaders of the other castes in times of both war and peace. In battle, they are a rallying force to their troops and a reminder that the greater good will defeat its foes, much like a space marine chaplain or a commissar. Should an ethereal fall in battle, however, the rest of the force may collapse under the grief, under their grief at their loss. So all the other castes do revere, respect, protect and defend their ethereals in both peacetime and wartime. So from what I had read, should an ethereal fall in battle, it is a, it is a most grievous, uh, you know, most, uh, a most grievous loss to that army, and it will be a, a source of distraction. And I think that plays out, you know, tactically in, in the loss of that leadership figure, your army does suffer without that leader, if your list is kind of centered on what that leader can bring to the troops around it, etc. You know what's missing for the Tau? Um... I find that right now in the not the lore necessarily, but in the game, the Tao is on, are only primarily represented by the Tao, that the Tao race, and like the Vespit. I mean, the Crute have their role, but the Vespit, the Crute, and even the humans. There are humans that are part of the Tao Empire. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see them work on all of those pieces a little bit more and to give us a real a better flavor for the Tau, what it's like to be on the Tau side of the war. Agreed. I think it was in season two we were talking about how amazing it would be to see like a really accurately represented Tau army. Meaning, you know, the, the Tau are not an ethnocentric race necessarily. You know, they think everybody can be a part of the greater good from what I understand. You know, they are actually very welcoming of other civilizations. Welcoming in the sense that you have to fight and kind of obey the, the, the call of the greater good, but, you know, welcoming in the sense where they're not just interested in eradicating all other species. They do want to bring them into the fold. Whereas, you know, uh, mankind under the rule of the emperor in the 41st millennium is none, is, you know, is not about to get friendly with Zeno's species and welcoming them into the emperor's grace by any means, you know. Whereas the Tao, I think, are the opposite of that. And we, we, we know that through their embrace of the Vespids and the Crute and uh, humans, in the humans, they're able to. In the human worlds, they're able to recruit into the Tau Empire. Yeah, so like one better Imperium. Almost. <laughs> hey, get that man. <laughs> so, um, real quick, um, I did find there are female Imperial Ethereals, and one was actually interrogated by an Inquisitor and later dissected by a Magos. Oh, oh well, there you go. Okay. H how else could we find out? 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Tao. So here's the thing that's really interesting about the Tao that I feel that they don't they don't really delve in. The Tao don't use the warp, and so they don't really tell us really how they travel around faster than light. But we know that they do. Am I? Are you guys with me? I don't think they can travel faster than light, actually, which I think is why their yeah, I their empire they were pretty limited. I think that's why their empire has been so slow to grow, right? Is they don't have enough speed, but also to their benefit, they don't have any contact with the warp. They have no psychers. They have no, you know, demons kind of around every corner as uh, as mankind is as uh, was wanted to do. You know, since they don't, since they're so disconnected from the warp, they're supposed to have more resistance to warp powers, but they don't. That doesn't come off in in the in gameplay. Let me tell you something else. The, <laughs> the, the warp. What was the last thing you said, Lavelle? Sorry. The crew can use the warp. Oh, I didn't know that. They crew absolutely. The crew have an ability that the tile don't know that they have. This was an early development of the lore, and they can actually go into the warp. And there's something about their innate ability. They always come back outside of the warp near a life-bearing planet. And the Crutes, they travel in the Crutes sphere. Yeah, so the Crute, you know, and they don't really give us enough about the Vespid. There's a, there's, it is a bunch of stuff there. There's a bunch of stuff there. I feel like that's something that would be like in a, um, you know, every once in a while, uh, GW will release, and I think they're called Apocryphas, which are like a collection of white dwarf articles and old codex pieces about a certain topic. Like there was one about. Uh, I forget. There's been a bunch of them, like Chaos Space Marines, Apocrypha, and there was one on Imperial Knights, etc. This would be a really cool one to to do, like, a Tau Apocrypha and, like, find all this early narrative stuff that may have never coalesced into, like, a large addition to a codex or everything, but would probably be cool to read about, like what you're saying, Lavelle. Like, that's probably written in some old book or a magazine that's been long out of print. You know, that would be cool right. to re- it would be cool to re-encounter those stories, especially with a race as interesting as the Tau in that they do have other... They have a lot of friends. You know, they have a lot of uh, friend races. Yeah. Yeah, so the other thing that's interesting nobody likes to talk about, the crew, what they do is they eat the, the, the people they defeat, and by doing that, they genetically um, they they pick up the positive traits of them by eating them. I did not know that. Yeah, so you know, oh, you know, you gotta do what you can. They evolve. It says they evolve by selecting traits of their defeated foes to absorb by eating them. Oh, all right. Um, and that's why recruit war bands across the galaxy look different. Ah, so, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. So they're like. They're like little intergalactic white blood cells. They're just yeah, I mean, just just down for the devouring. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I I'd like to see somebody. They don't have it, the ability. I'd like to see somebody to be able to field a crude army with the large dinosaur-like beasts, the hounds, and everything. That would mm-hmm. be awesome. I don't know if crude hound do crude hounds even have a point value, or are they attachments now? I thought you could take them as a unit. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, yeah, you can. They're four points a model. Carlo, can you talk to us about ethereals in the current Tau meta, how you would take them in a list, what their stat lines are, etc., what they're good for in a game? The ethereals? Yeah. They're good for holding the stick. Yeah, they got that stick. It's pretty big. You could really, you know, you could whack <laughs> someone with that. <laughs> Get a lot of leverage on them. <laughs> Um, so the ethereal I will bring up her data sheet Um, so 
the great thing about the ethereal is that you could take them you could take them classic or you could take them with the hover drone so the hover drone pay an extra i think it's five points or something maybe eight points and they gain two inches to their movement so they go from a six to an eight and you can they get the fly keyword um which is almost a necessity when you're taking them because you want them to be able to move around with your drones that are also an eight inch movement. Um, because the ethereal does something where she could share her, she has a leadership nine. Uh, your drone squads have a leadership of six In competitive play. You really want to run, uh, depending on what format you're playing, you, you want that to dictate how large your drone squads are because in ITC, uh, if you take a lot of two-man drone squads, you can end up giving up uh, what they call is kill more every turn. So if you kill more more units than your opponent, you get another victory point for that turn. Uh, because, so you really want to kill those small units of of the drones. Yeah, exactly. And you know, easy is a relative term. I'm sure anybody who's played against Tau drones know that that is a that's a weighted weighted uh, statement right there. So. Yeah, it, it still it, it, it still takes some focused fire, right? But it's uh, but there's it's fewer models to take off the table. Right, exactly. So um, if you run like a squad of six, and under normal circumstances you kill three, right, and you roll a four on your leadership roll, you're killing a drone right there. You know what I mean? So you have a 50% chance of killing at least one drone on leadership, whereas if you take the ethereal, you make those drone squads a lot more durable, um, and it prevents you from having to spend... 2 CP every turn to try and keep a drone squad alive, which are essential to your tau list. So um, they also have uh, an ability called Invocation of the Elements. So during your movement phase, they can invoke one of the elemental powers. Um, and this is what we were talking about. It's kind of similar to like a psychic power. Um, and they benefit any infantry or battle suit within six inches. So one and there's a strat now that actually came out with the greater good book that allows them i think for one cp to do two powers so you can subtract for calm of tides you can subtract one from any morale test made for affected units for storm of fire you can reroll hit rolls of one in the shooting phase for affected units that remain stationary in the movement phase uh for sense of stone whenever a model on affected Unit loses a rune, wound, you roll d6, and on a 6, that model does not lose that wound, so feel no pain. And Zephyr's Grace, you can reroll the dice for affected units when they advance. Um, so an ethereal can be pretty critical in a lot of armies, not just for what we talked about before, but... Um, so if you want to mont, if you're like one of those tower armies that wants to monka and get up in the middle of the board for board control, like turn 1... That reroll advance can be really solid, um, and then later on, um, when you are stationary, um, normally with Tau, you, you get marker lights on things. You can reroll ones there. Uh, if you want to split fire a lot, that reroll one can be really good because you could pick a bunch of different targets rather than having to rely on splitting up your marker lights. You could still dump your marker lights into one target and then re be able to reroll ones against the secondary and tertiary targets on the board for you. Um, the other thing is um, the uh, feel no pain can be really helpful because if you think about it, you have so many drones, right? And 
they will eat wounds for you, but that feel no pain can really save you on your riptides, riptides a lot too. And sometimes if you make you make a couple of those six up feel no pains throughout the game, it can really change the course of the game because that you prevent that riptide from degrading in certain scenarios. And um, you know, even even if you just it's affecting your fire warriors and stuff like that too. If you're running those, you can um, really save uh, your army a lot and prevent your uh, the uh, damage output and the uh, efficacy of your opponent's uh, multi-damage shots and stuff like that. So, um, other than that, I mean, they're pretty. Uh, they're they're they have a, a close combat profile. Uh, they hit on a three up, which is unusual for Tau. Um, the characters usually are a little bit better. Like Farsight hits on a two. Uh, but uh, the ethereal can hit with an or their honor blade, which is that big stick we were talking about, and that's a hits at strength five with one damage for three attacks. So you know it's it's decent, and sometimes if you have a couple of those attacks that beat off some models, you could prevent kind of like a wrap or something from happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the GW site now, and it looks like there are three ethereal models currently available. So it's still just a plain ethereal model. There's an ethereal with honor blade, and then there's An Shatao uh, ethereal with the double-sided, like the Darth Maul um, honor blade kind of a thing here with, with this little handout. It's pretty cool. I didn't yeah. know that exists. Yeah, it's cool. It's unfortunately, temporarily out of stock online, but it's a good-looking model. So these are uh, these are the like they're unarmored, on foot, lots of. Um, Looks like kind of medallions and talismans they kind of have on their person, um, unarmored, uh, just with their um, with their honor blades. They're kind of like shaman, almost mm. like a like a preppy shaman. What's what's their armor save? I, I missed that. Sorry. Uh, five up. Yeah, five so up. they are very squishy. Yeah, sure. And how many how many wounds? Uh, they have four wounds, so not bad. They're only like I think fifty points somewhere around there. Most of those. Uh, Tau characters um, on foot tend to be a lot cheaper. They're around four, like the Kadra Fireblade is forty-two points. Uh, um, the Ethereal is like forty-eight to fifty points. The uh, Firesight Marksmen, which are elite choices, but they are characters, are twenty-five points each. So Tau runs a lot of really cheap characters. You could fill out your detachments li- with. Listen to me, guys. We're being sold out on this tile thing. We should be looking at more of the Demurge, the Nisikar, all these other great things that are in the tile arsenal. The Nisikar, the Nekarsa is a race of psychers that the tile have. Did you know that? Ah. These are more friends yes. of more friends of Tau. Interesting. Yes. And so what we I don't know why we don't see it, but we could be looking at um they're a space, it says that they're a space of powerful psychers that are allowed with the tile. And they do a lot of the exploration. Um, and they, they were, it says here they contributed a lot to their starships, the tile starships. And so what we could be looking at is more of like, a, um, even though the tile are clearly in the lead, more of like a consortium of races. And that, could, that would mean that every tile army you saw on the table wouldn't necessarily have to look the same. I'd like to see that. Yeah. I think, you know, so in, a, in the New Greater Good book, uh, GW actually dropped a lot of really good strats for Crute, um, which I was hoping would entice more people to play them. I certainly looked at them. 
Um, but I, they're just not at that point yet where they really do anything on the right. battlefield, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I think Tau could really benefit from something like that. It would be really to see more diversity on the battlefield. And I think they have done that to an extent. Um, you are going to see with the greater good, a lot of room for models that didn't have a role on the battlefield to now have one, like the crisis suit bomb I was telling you about earlier. Cause those were really bad up until this supplement. So <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 It's, it, it'd be, it's, it's interesting the way they're developing. I want more. Agreed. Agreed. It's nice to see uh, races that have been around for, you know, more than an edition or two, and there's still a lot more to be fleshed out about them. That's encouraging for the future of the game and the future of the narrative, for sure. Cool. With that, we will take a short break. We'll return with Section 4 from the Stacks. We'll be right back. from the stacks this episode we're talking about a short story that carlo had picked out it is called sacrifice by the author ben counter whose work i had encountered get it in ben countered if you have to explain the joke yeah you know you're, right, you're right <laughs> you're right my bad i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna edit that out of the show though i will let my humor fail where it needs to fail i'm i, I can own up to that um, so I met, uh, I, I encountered Ben Counter's work for the first time in the Grey Knights Omnibus book, which I read before I even started playing Grey Knights. And the book really focused on the uh, the long, arduous, perilous, downright painful process a uh, novitiate, a, a young person, goes through to become a Grey Knight. And this story also focuses on these literal sacrifices that have to be made so that the Grey Knights can do what they need to do. So this is available from Black Library. It is part of a collection of short stories or a uh, an individual purchase. The collection is called Victories of the Space Marines. I believe it's a $12 collection of short stories. This is the only one that I've read so far from the collection, but there are other really good authors in the set. But it's also available as a, as a th- uh, $3 or $4 individual download. It uh, doesn't take very long to read. It is a short story by its very nature. It's a quick read. Um, But I I thought it was really uh, very intense. You know, as a lot of these uh, GW Black Library short stories are, they just kind of throw you right into the action. And in this case, it was no exception. Um, I enjoyed this because it started off right away talking about the experience of being teleported. Which is kind of the strange part of the 41st millennium in that the technology is the way they explain it in this story, which is which is a nice illumination of the technology. They explain it as being extremely old. No one can build new ones. No one can fix the ones that are there. So they're extremely precious, as all technology is in the 41st millennium, because all we're doing is really maintaining. We are not evolving our technology anything at this point in the, the future of humanity. Um, and th- these teleporters are, are fussy things, you know, in, in other books and uh, tales we hear about uh, space marines or, or anybody getting teleported, like, into the middle of a, a wall or into their battle brother, so they don't live through that experience, of course. And uh, this story does a good job of setting up how extreme and how intense and how uh, rare and almost um, 
sacred being teleported is, because they're Grey Knights after all, we do have to acknowledge their uh, almost holiness, almost, kind of. It was kind of weird. I, like, so I guess I haven't read as much lore as you, and I didn't expect for teleporting to be so uh, kind of a, um, a gift, almost. Like, yeah. since nobody yeah. gets to do it, right? Sure. You know, I'm a Space Wolf player, so we don't like that stuff anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being teleported is not uh, stormy enough for the Space Wolves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's too easy, really. You're. You're not there one minute, you're there the next, you know? There's no there's no traveling involved. There's True. no uh the, like the journey is part of the part <laughs> of the story, you know? So so the other the other <laughs> the other thing I really liked about this this short story too was and the story really does go into when we say that a Grey Knight's armor is sanctified and blessed, and his stormbolter is sanctified and blessed, and the rounds that he is shooting out of his stormbolter are sanctified and blessed. This story goes into what it takes to sanctify and bless those weapons and the armor as these little asides in the middle of this battle sequence. So the story starts, Grey Knight's teleported onto the ship. The ship has been taken over by this, uh, um, it's not a, not a demon prince, but a, you know, a, a a big man in the eyes of an the abomination, God. an abomination, right? <laughs> a a, form, a yeah. formerly a formerly human, up and coming, you know, chaos captain, if you will. He's looking really strange. He's got eyes on his chest. He's got and no feathers. feathers. He's got feathers Jump coming out. out of the bottom half of his body. Yeah. He's got a bunch of arms. It, it's actually a really interesting description of how this. I, I couldn't tell like what chaos god they were talking about at first while I'm reading it because it's like at first I thought it was Nurgle. And then, like, I'm thinking it's Zinch because mm-hmm. it's the bird. You know? Yeah, I was so, think I was thinking Zinch by the end of it for sure. Um, yeah. But I really did like the the way the the way that he described this chaos god having all of these arms, and each arm was kind of doing a different uh, like incantation or or spell or kind of. Um, I, I almost pictured them as being almost like sign language symbols, you know, to keep in commune with. He the, was Doctor Stranging it. He was you definitely Doctor Stranging the, it. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, was doing, he was doing all that. Yeah, it was a cool description. If listeners can imagine what that is. That sound that I made. <laughs> <You know> what, <laughs> it's the Doctor Strange <laughs> sound. <laughs> 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 yeah. Hey, do yeah. we have to not give spoilers? Because I feel like they can skip over it. You know what I mean? We could talk about it, Tim. So, as it turns out, <laughs> in, in order to every bolter round that a Grey Knight fires is is consecrated with human blood of a human sacrifice. And this isn't the sacrifice of like a criminal or a bad person. This is the sacrifice of a good person for every bolter round. Holy crap! Yeah, and it goes into so- the whole story of like this 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 dude. You're getting his throat cut over like the sacred bowl with one single bolter round in it against his will. Yes, and then <laughs> like they they blackmail him basically to do it. So I'm like like that doesn't make any sense to me because if the act itself is evil, because that's evil to me. You know what I mean? Wouldn't that be contributing to chaos? Like how does that deter chaos? You know, it may be pure blood, but it's pure blood. 
you know, be gotten in a in an evil way. It would be like if if the Red Cross came over and like cut your arm off to get your blood from it. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's like, true. No, that's true. That's true. We can uh, we can leave this as a gray area of uh, of the narrative and <laughs> not look too much into it, lest we get like, a knock on our door by the Inquisition. <laughs> like the bullets might just be killing them because they're bullets. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. This bullet needs the blood of the innocent. It needs the blood of the innocent. <laughs> what did you think of the uh, like the psychers they had? I, like, because to me, I was thinking I didn't know where the story go, was going, so I was yeah. thinking those were going to be the sacrifices to the Golden Throne. Yeah, but these weren't. Yeah, right. So, so these, so, so the story starts in this battle sequence. You know, the Grey Knights get on the ship. They're trying to do battle with this formerly human uh, chaos warrior. Right? He's already infected the ship and turned the He's ship's a real crew. Jerk. A real yeah. jerk. A real bad guy. Yeah. Right. Um, so, in between these battle sequences, we flash back in time to how the bolter round that the one brother Alaric I think his name was about was about to fire into a into this demon princey kind of character so we we learned at that point that that bolter round was blessed with the blood of this good man who had his throat cut in front of all of these members of the ecclesiarchy um, into this magical golden bowl with the bolter round in it. So there's the one bolter round, which of course, you know, mind blown, there are millions of bolter rounds in the Grey Knight's arsenal. There are millions of innocent people getting slaughtered yep. to sacrifice for those bolter rounds. Then flash forward a bit, you know, we're back to the battle scene. We're fighting, we're fighting, Hold we're on. fighting. Real quick, what did you think about the... The, the description of how how the blood like because when he when he shoots the bullet it's like he's like shooting up over his head and then he gets bathed in the blood but it's almost like a like a weirdly like sexual oh yeah wording, the, the way they described it i was like this guy is like turned on by killing demons oh or yeah something. oh yeah <laughs> definitely no, this there's there's a lot of relishing in the moment going on in the story for sure and even even one of the brothers that's teleported aboard the ship with their leader alaric is like you know he's got like a lot of pep in his step to kill the emperor's name like everything he says it's like how you doing brother so-and-so he's like kill the emperor's name you know he's like he's got like, kind of a <laughs> kind of a one-track mind guy which i like it's a very great nighty you know but was later, that the so, dude with the big hammer yes exactly right think, yeah. right right so, so you know, fast forward a little bit in the story. Uh, our our main brother Alaric here is getting like a wash with the purple flame of this chaos god's attack. Right? Then we flash back in time, and we learn that in order to sanctify the sigils on a Grey Knight's armor, which we know is unlike any other Space Marine uh, suit of armor, right? We learn that his armor is is made is forged in furnaces fired by the bodies of psychers. Right, so there are thousands of like psychers basically like yeah. just just burnt, cooked to to kind of, you know, burnish the sheen on the sigils of the Grey Knight suits of armor. So it yeah, sounds, so, this sounds like oh. propaganda. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. I mean the story it, it, but Ben Counter to his credit does tell us what's going on right from the top. He calls the story sacrifice for a reason. What are the sacrifices needed to get this work done? And he also there's another sacrifice being made too, right? In the role of this in- Inquisition um, interrogator. We learn that the process to become an interrogator for the Inquisition involves the complete loss of one's own identity, because there's another flashback towards the end of the story where this interrogator is basically put through all manner of psychic hell before he comes out the other side and can't remember his name, at which point he can really begin his, entra- his training to become an Inquisitor 
an inquisitorial um, interrogator. Really interesting set of three uh, sacrifices that need to be made, you know, for the good of the Imperium. Now that I can believe. That was a spoiler-laden review. I really do think it's work. It's worth reading, even if you listen to that whole section, haven't read the story yet, and feel like, all right, you got it. It is worth reading. It's a cool, it's quick read. It's only like 30 pages, so you could do it, you know, like an hour before the podcast you're supposed to record, for Boom. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a really great, quick read. Um, nice to read it now, as I uh, you know, eagerly await getting that uh, book four of the Psychic Awakening series to kind of reinvigorate my enthusiasm for playing my Grey Knights, so it, it kind of came at a good time in my own hobby. Um, to discover this, to you know, encounter this story, and uh, and read it now. It did kind of get me fired up to get my Grey Knights back on the table sooner rather than later. So it was a great call, Carlo. Thank you for uh, pointing this one out. Um, next uh, next episode, rather, we will have another story to talk about. I'm not sure if this is going to be a novel or another short story. We have to talk offline about that. But we are going to be sure to do uh, one of these sections in each episode coming up. So do stay tuned for more. We hope you found it. Uh, enjoyable. Stay tuned. Next section up. Da, 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 da. Section 5, we have an interview with Carl, the winner of Red Cap's February RTT. Stay tuned for that. Welcome back to the Crew Shaken Podcast. This will be our segment in the Meta. I'm your host, Carlo, for this, and with me is Carl Vela. He's a member of the BWG group here in Philly and also part of uh, our competitive team, Dumpster Fire. Uh, so welcome, Carl. Thanks, Carlo. Uh, it's good to be here. And uh, quickly, we need to address the fact that I find it to be a crime against humanity that uh, Tim pronounces it meta. But we'll uh, we'll <laughs> have time, hopefully, to work on that later. Well, I made sure to pronounce it that way for him, just in, you know, <laughs> you know he's not here today to talk with us, so I wanted to give the listeners a piece of him you know <laughs> that's like a good plan <laughs> so um for those of you that don't know carl he's a longtime 40k player in the philly area here he is one of the best players i know of, um in ter- like as part of our team and as part of the meta in general um you know he's a top tier competitive player and he's an all-around nice guy and um the thing that you know first kind of uh if i could tell the listeners really quickly like Upon meeting you, like when uh, a lot of people have kind of this like misjudgment of competitive players and they think that sometimes they are just a little bit whack, you know, if you've heard that term thrown around, but I've actually had a good experience with competitive players on the top tables and especially you, Carl, like you're like one of the nicest guys I know. You're one of the uh, guys that's like more um, generous in terms of like teaching you certain things, even if you're playing against them in a match. So um, just to give like some of the listeners that may not be as familiar with competitive play, you know, you can still have a really great time in a game, uh, especially with people like Carl. Damn, dude, that's that's high praise. Thank you. While we're on that, so uh, tell us about yourself. Like, how long have you been playing Warhammer, and like, what kind of got you into it? So yeah, um, I've actually haven't been playing 40k that long. I've probably been playing in total for like three years. Uh, two of which I've been like really focusing on competitive play. I I found that I just like I have a lot of hobbies um, that I like to do that that are like really physically stimulating, but nothing that was like super just like mentally um, immersive and challenging. And so um, found 40k and was super hyped on it. The way I got into uh, competitive play was actually Sam Lucidi. Sam um, 
everything you said about me, which I feel like was really flattering, I could say like tenfold about Sam. Sam is just, uh, I mean, a lot of people listening to this podcast, I'm sure know him well, but dude is just an amazingly talented, smart, uh, funny and fun uh, Warhammer player. And we just like randomly set up this casual game. And I was just like, he noticed that I was thinking about the game in like terms of probabilities and, and um, I don't know, like this type of advanced thinking that is usually a signal that people would be into competitive 40k and he just kind of like i don't know uh introduced me to that world and i've just been in love with it ever since because it's just the thing i love about 40k is just you can never have a perfect game right and you can just think and think and think as hard as you can and there's always going to be things that you can improve um and to your point i think that one of the things i really love about competitive 40k is that in in a weird way like yes you're playing against someone but like in a weird way if you're playing a good game it's like it's kind of collaborative right like both players are like trying to exercise like the best of their intelligence and like have a good game and like and really just like i don't know chase that dragon of having the 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 best game you could possibly play so in that way it is like kind of collaborative and cooperative oh yeah and it it feels really good and you'll say you know you play like six games in a tournament or whatever 10 games of some gts and there's always one or two games that are just like one of the best experiences of your life, right? So it's like so every true. tournament you go to, it's just like, man, I wish I could play that guy, that player again. I wish I could play against that guy again, you know? So yeah, you learn so much from those games too, right? Like when you're really just like getting in like a good rhythm with an opponent, regardless of whether you're winning or losing or getting your you know ass kicked or whatever, like. You just, I don't know, like, I just feel like when there's a good vibe around the table, you just end up taking away so much more from that game, uh, just, like, feeling good about it, but then also, like, just, I don't know, like, thinking about how you could have improved or, or how you can do things better next time. Exactly, you know, and it's it's important when you, to have a good opponent like that that can free your mind up to think that way, you know what I mean? Because, like, I know sometimes we do have frustrating games and you have a hard time getting your mind out of the uh like the gutter of disappointment or something like that but like mm-hmm. when you have a good game even if you've lost you'd know it because you're able to it, it kind of it's like a weight off of yourself right because you can kind of think more about what you've done so uh in in that tone to continue that train of thought i think we could talk a little bit about your experience at lvo and what your takeaways were from that so i was wondering uh, now you've run a different list today we're going to talk about two lists that carl has run one at LVO, and then one at a most recent RTT. So um, Carl's done very well at LVO going four and two, which is, I think, something that a lot of 40K players aspire to. Like, you know, going four and two is very, very difficult, um, especially with the amount of players and amount of experienced players you have at LVO. There's like 900 people. I think this year they had 750 show up out of the eight or 900 that signed up. So... Um, tell us a little bit about your list that you brought there and tell us about, you know, the six games you played. I know you played against two chaos lists. It looks like three sisters lists and a, yeah, that's and right. a orc. I was list. definitely surprised by that for sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'll give, I'll give the cliff notes because LVO was an awesome experience. And like, to your point about like those good opponents, I'm always worried in like these big GTs when like you draw, like, I don't know. You're always, I'm always worried about round six. Cause like people are tired and sometimes they're cranky. And I just had like one of the most amazing, uh, round sixes of any tournament ever. But anyway, um, the list was, uh, 
uh, all mono Slanesh. So that's what I've been running. That's what I was running all last year for the 2019 season uh, to try to get best in faction there. Unfortunately, uh, the guy Paul Winters, who is a really just amazing hobbyist, great player, um, really, really cool dude. I got to meet him for the first time. Uh, beat me out on best in faction for Slanesh by three points after that, oh. uh, after LVO. Oh, dude, it was totally brutal. I was doing the math, and I think with like two more battle points over six games, I would have nailed it. But um, it was good. I'm, I'm grateful to lose to Paul because he's a really awesome dude. Um, and uh, so anyway, it was all mono Slanesh. Um, it was a possessed bomb, um, a, a little bit dissimilar from, uh, well, I guess from from something like TJ's list, TJ Lanigan's list is actually pretty dissimilar just because um, you're forced into mono Slanesh. So you don't have smite spam from the Zinch uh, uh, units, from the Thousand Suns units, and you don't have the kind of resilience of screens that you get from uh, the Nurgle units, like the Plague Burst Crawlers and stuff. So um, the list was a 20-man possessed bomb uh, in a... Um, Alpha Legion, uh, I think it was the Supreme Command, and then uh, Dark Apostle, Master of Possession, um, and then an, um, uh, uh, Disco Lord, Lord Discordant. Um, take him for the minus three to hit that you can get with Alpha Legion for the Warlord trait plus the Apostle's Prayer um, plus his natural Alpha Legion uh, trait. So he makes a really good screen for those possessed. Um, and then there were two battalions, one of Slanesh demons with uh, a mirror and a herald of Slanesh, and then 30 demonettes. And then there was another battalion of um, Emperor's Children, which was uh, three units – I'm sorry, two units of cultists, a unit of 12 noise marines with two blastmasters. Um, they rode around in a drill most of the time. And then a unit of 10 terminators, a chaos lord, and a sorcerer. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a really, really fun list. I was actually working on that list with TJ, and he was the one who recommended the – um, uh, the uh, um, Noise Marines and the Terminators, which actually worked out to really good effect in a lot of games. They they require a ton of finesse and like a lot of chaos. Um, yeah, uh, Terminators units. are an unusual choice in this day and age. Yeah. Right? So like, how did they work out for you specifically? I'm kind of interested. So it's actually funny because the the reason why I put the Terminators in there was because I was just so tired of Obliterators losing me games on shitty dice rolls. Um, and the the thing that were really good for Obliterators in that particular list is that with the infantry keyword, they're really good at abusing uh, line of sight in the center board, right? Um, because they can just pass in and out of walls, and they can also shield for the possessed. So if the possessed want to stay in center board and stay concealed late game, having those obliterators there with a four-up invuln and a five-up feel-no-pain and minus two to hit um, are really, really tough to lift. But I just couldn't rely on their shooting, and Terminators for the same amount of points get you about 50% more wounds and about the same survivability. And uh, especially if you spend the two CP in the beginning of the game uh, for combat elixirs to give them t5 so potentially just as survivable and a lot more wounds and kind of filling that same really critical role of uh, center board dominance um that helped out so much so you know it didn't pan out that way in every game certainly there's some games um uh where i got a little too aggressive with them and that's kind of what i mean where it's it's a bit of a finesse unit you got to be very clear on how you need to leverage that unit from the beginning of the game to to make them work but they were fun as hell man i think uh, i think there's definitely a place for them in in some chaos lists perfect yeah, it sounds uh sounds like a lot of fun. I know Grant's been kind of playing around with the Terminators a little bit after hearing your success with them. So um, I'm interested to see more. I would love to see more of them on on the table again. And um, you know, if we could, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see where this possess bomb list goes too, because I know there's been after LVO a lot of talk about it disappearing. But after seeing your result at the RTT uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't know if that's going to happen. And <laughs> so like for people that, uh, you know, 
don't know, we've been running a few RTTs in Philly lately, and uh, the last one, Carl actually won. So uh, against now in that tournament, you went against it was actually kind of abnormal because we had no Space Marine players, right? Um, which was out of the fifteen people that came, so we had a good turnout. Um, but you went against Necrons, Necrons, and Imperial Guard. <laughs> Uh, party Another lot, weird spread right? for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Another totally weird spread. And that's, and that's what's worth saying about possessed bomb is, um, you know, a lot of people, especially with gray nights on the horizon and seeing the top finishers performance at, um, at LVO are saying that possessed bomb is dead in the water. And I think in some degree it, it absolutely is. I think gray knights present such a hard counter to a traditional possessed bomb list that it's going to be really, really hard to see that, um, persist in the meta, especially if gray knights take root, I think is, um, as much as some people think they might. Um, and I think people are definitely excited about them as an army, so I think they totally could. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Possessed Bomb is in a really interesting place. That, and and uh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about the, the new list um, that it took to the RTT. Uh, and before I do, I just have to give, like, almost complete credit to um, Aiden Barkley is this guy that I met at Hammer in the New Year before um, – before LVO is like kind of an LVO prep tournament. Awesome dude. We had an amazing game. We were both playing possessed centric chaos lists and he had some really interesting ideas and we kind of liked what each other was going for in the list. And uh, like since then, I've been almost like chatting with that dude nonstop about like chaos strategy and possessed strategy. And um, he took a really, really interesting list to LVO, which was a double possessed bomb. Uh, and some Emperor's Children Battalion, some really interesting tactics there. And he ended up going 4-0-2. So technically undefeated, he got two ties. Whoa. Um, <laughs> and uh, and, is like, and he's a brilliant player, incredible performance. And since then, after the New Thousand Suns rules came out, we just chatting a lot, a lot about kind of a lot of the jank and potential uh, to make a double possessed bomb work in a meta where um, – it, 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 I think Grey Knights and, and in some other cases like Marines and Centurion Spam and Raven Guard kind of demand that you can trade a possessed unit. And I think that's the really, really big problem with uh, the single possessed lists is that if that possessed list dies, your list dies with it, right? And um, most of the time in most matchups, you can find a way to keep that single possessed star safe. But in a lot of matchups, there is just that you're going to be swimming against that tide. And all of a sudden, if I'm playing a list with a double possessed bomb, now I actually have something that I can trade. And if I'm trading up, there's a really, really good chance I'm going to win that game, right? Um I think Grey Knights are actually a great example because, like, Paladins will just melt Possessed, right? Right. But if I'm trading a unit of 15 or 18 Possessed for a unit of 10 Paladins, that is a huge uptrade in that game, right? And will probably give me, like, the tools I need or the flexibility or the survivability I need to maybe dial that game over into a win. Um, right, because those pal that 10-man Paladin squad is the crux of that list, right? It's if, bananas, Yeah, dude. if you take that out, you know, and for people that don't know, the, uh, why don't you explain to them how the Paladin squad works? Yeah, um, I mean, so, and, and a lot of people, there's there's differing schools of thought right now. I think it's going to take a little while for Grey Knights to kind of shake out in the meta in a really stabilized way. But, you know, some people are looking at smaller uh, Paladin squads with a lot of character support, which I think has a ton of merit. Other people are building lists that are centered around, like, a 10-man uh, Paladin unit. Um, but really, the, the secret to them is that with Astral Aim, you can bury them in some center center board line of sight blocking terrain, and they can get insane damage output with uh, Strength 6, AP-2, flat 2 damage bolters. They can shoot in the Psychic phase to ignore things like Conceal that keeps the Possessed safe, um, and their survivability is probably like unmatched for the type of unit that it is because you can give them uh uh what is it the the advanced physiology or whatever it is for the um never get wounded on a one two or three yep, they the can get a minus one 
Yeah, yeah the transhuman. That's what. And it then is. they get a litany that's minus one to wound, right? I right. Think. Yeah. yeah. So. And the and the great and the you can't stop a litany, right? And if they have CP, most armies can't stop a strat, right? So there's just this like. And I think they even have a tide for, like, minus one to hit or something. So, like, even in late game, they can have, like, some extra boost to survivability against, like, ignore line of sight armies and things. Like, the just the, the, the amount of defensive buffs that they can stack with Sanctuary and everything else Grey Knights have going on is, is pretty insane. Yeah, I faced it uh, in Jason's list, actually, the other night. And, you know, if you're not careful, you get punished real yeah. badly for movement errors. Um, those two damage smites that they put out are devastating. Yeah, it's really rough, and yeah. especially when you consider if I end up eating smites on a possessed squad, that's flat four damage, and that's two possessed gone for every successful smite cast. It's like <laughs> there's there's no room for error in that matchup. There really isn't. So with that said, um, what is the jank in your new <laughs> list that's going to sure. help go against that kind of stuff, right? So yeah. I, I know I was privy to kind of the introduction like an introductionary game of this list and i have to say it's like it's it's an awesome list to see in action and it is a very um combative list if i mm. if i were to say right so it's like you yeah, really have to think, think to play fair. against it so yeah. tell tell the listeners a little bit about it sure um so i'm going i think i haven't quite settled yet but i think i'm going mono zinch this season i just like the limitations that ruinous power themed lists put on list design and force you to think creatively so that said the the real list that aiden and i have been working on uh pretty extensively is a chaos soup list and it involves uh slanesh demons because a possessed bomb list with the mirror is just so incredible and you without slanesh you lose things like the forbidden gem which are such an amazing tool for chaos uh, you lose advance and charge on the possessed, um, and you lose a lot of flexibility. Um, so I, I won't really dig into that list um, because I think the list that I ran, the, the mono zinch list, preserves a lot of the functionality of that of that list, and um, I guess more um, appropriate for this conversation. But anyway, um, so the list is mono zinch. It's made up of three battalions because this list is actually like like most chaos lists is starving for command points. But unlike some other chaos lists, if you don't have an abundance of command points, you're just dead in the water. Um, so it is a Thousand Suns Battalion, and that is Aramon, a Warlord Terminator Sorcerer, and then another Terminator Sorcerer, both with Familiars. That gives them the plus one to cast on their first power. There is two units of Cultists and a unit of 20 Rubric Marines, um, which is expensive, but we'll get to why they're so important later. That is Cult of Time, um, and Cult of Time, as a reminder, is the uh, cult that gives you access to the spell that will bring back slain models to the unit. That's obviously very important for the Rubrics, but we'll get to that in a sec. Um, there is a Zinch Demons Battalion that is a uh, Changecaster, which is just the Herald of Zinch, and a Changeling, which is the guy who gives the six-up feel-no-pain aura and is a cast-one-deny-one psyker. And then um, two units of uh, ten Brimstone Horrors, and then one unit of nineteen Brimstone Horrors with a Blue Horror. A um, little bit of jank there, too. We'll get to that in a second. Carlo, that's actually an addition since I played you with the list, so uh, I'll cover that. Jank um, alert! You know, I'll yes. just play it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I gotta hit those Jamaican foghorns. Yeah. Actually, I think Tim would kill me if I tried to put in sound effects. On <laughs> hey, Tim, Tim's not here right now, man. Be you. All right, all right, all right. Let's go. Let's uh, go. What's going on? All right. The third, the third battalion is uh, Alpha Legion, and that's got um, two Dark Apostles, each with their uh, ten point. Um, uh, dark Acolyte units, or uh, I forget what they're called. I think they're Dark Acolytes. Anyway, um, a Master of Possession and uh, one unit of 18 Possessed, a unit of 15 Possessed, um, both Mark of Zinch, obviously, because I want to preserve that uh, that Zinch faction. And um, 
I'm thinking that is it. I think I mentioned the 30 cultists. Um, so that's it. I mean, you can see right away that like the, the big power units is there's just a giant blob of rubrics and two big units of, um, and two big units of possessed. And that's pretty much the list. You can get most of everything you've ever needed to get done, done with those, um, done with those big units because you're also remember just dishing out a ton of smite every turn. Um, a couple of the tricks that are worth mentioning is like many chaos lists, this list is all about keeping your opponent out of the shooting phase, or at least just totally butchering his shooting phase in a way that is phenomenally frustrating and really joyful for most chaos players. <laughs> um, so you can do that in a few ways. The first is the rubrics. Um, so the rubrics can dark matter crystal anywhere they want in the board. Uh, rubrics, by the way, like a lot of people need to be start like looking at this unit after uh, after that Thousand Suns Psychic Awakening book because once they get their buffs off, and they usually will when they enter in a dangerous situation because I just start them literally in the back corner of the board and then Dark Matter Crystal them where I need them, um, they will have a minus one to hit from Glamour of Zinch. They will have a four-up invuln that will go to a three-up invuln for one CP as soon as they get targeted, and they'll always get targeted. And then additionally... They have that mechanic that gives them a two-up invuln against all one damage weapons. So a 20-man unit, especially when a 20-man unit is healing two to three models a turn, has just insane survivability um, when you've got a two-up and a three-up invuln for a couple of psychic spells that you're almost guaranteed to cast with all the bonuses to cast. So that's one primary role of the uh, Rubric Marines is to shield for the concealed possessed. Um, you know, with Death Hacks and AP minus two bolters and and uh, Veterans of the Long War and the ability to tap twice if they haven't moved, they also have really insane uh, offensive output. Um, the really the, the the trick, and again credit to Aiden for for thinking of this. The real trick with them is that against armies that present you with good rap targets, um, which again is just something you can pinch to keep the rest of your army pretty much out of the shooting phase because the possessed will be concealed and nothing else will really be able to shoot them. Um, or they'll only really able uh, be able to shoot like chaff and stuff if you wrap a unit turn one. Um, you can dark matter crystal the rubrics. You can chain back and you give the master of possession the sacrifice power. The master of possession uses the sacrifice power to kill a rubric marine. Then you use the heal power of cult of time to bring back a rubric. But since you're no longer um, forced to stay outside of nine inches of an enemy unit, you put that rubric marine exactly two inches forward towards your wrap target. He's got an inch and a half base. And then all of a sudden you've just added four inches to your charge distance. So you went from a nine on the deep strike or on the dark matter crystal charge to a five which with Gaze of Fate and a reroll is statistically almost unfailable. Right. So just to recap what you just said for listeners, like you're sacrificing, so you're taking a rubric away from the squad. You're then using Dark Matter Crystal to move them out, um, at just outside of nine inches of an enemy, enemy unit, which is a restriction. And then after the movement phase is over, during the psychic phase, you're healing one back up, placing it within two inch coherency and due to the base size you've got a four inch lead there for five inch charge basically that's exactly yeah. right and and the cool thing too is that the rubrics are really strong against shooting right with that two up three up invuln but when they're wrapping something in combat and all of a sudden your opponent has like smash captains and like really heavy hitting like damage eight like attacks to put against them they do not like a three up invuln in close combat right especially when there's 20 of those wounds and so even if your opponent like doesn't is is okay forfeiting the shooting phase like that unit still puts up with an insane amount of punishment um in the assault phase uh even even against uh armies that have like that have pretty balanced assault elements in them so um that's a really strong tactic that's also why i added the unit of um 
19 brims and one blue is because there's three summon points in my list, so I can perform the same trick again, but this time with a really, really cheap sacrificial unit, because <laughs> that unit of brims, like, clocks in at, like, 60 points or something like that. It's totally ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And that'll yeah, mean, and you, like, you know, that they don't care about those thunder hammers, you know? They're just right. like, ah, whatever. Four, right. three damage, four damage, eight damage. And that's actually <laughs> that's actually a great example because if all they have to countercharge with is a smash captain, I would much rather send in those brims because I'll be able to wrap those scouts or whatever it is, um, and the scouts will never chew through that many wounds, especially at a six up invuln. Um, and then at that point, I've only like I, I can still keep my rubrics and I can play them defensively or I can use them for damage output, and so it just gives me another tool to gum up my opponent's army. And like all, like any good chaos list, it's all about um, just denial, denying your opponent what exactly they want to do whether it's in the shooting phase or the assault phase that heresy will get you (laughs) and that's will man that's what that's honestly is what i love about chaos lists (laughs) is that it's like it's about disruption right like it's not about like your plans are to disrupt your opponent's plans your plans aren't to execute your plan flawlessly like chaos is such a fun unique army to play because it's like pretty much you're playing just to mess with whatever your opponent is trying to accomplish it's funny like not a lot of armies translate really well from the lore to the table but chaos i think does like in that respect right i totally agree with that yeah there's it is so sinister the way they play on the table of just like yeah taking taking away the strength of the opponent yeah so um with that said and i don't know if you've are you that's a pretty good uh descriptor of your list so far is there anything you left out you feel like uh no i don't think so i think to reiterate like the double the double possessed bomb really um really just allowed you to make trades and that's the important thing to take away from that um and it's something that like you know a a lot of lists can't deal with right i was uh you know if i send 18 possessed into something to kill your sanguinary guard and your smash captain and yes your uh your admech army is probably gonna mulch the rest of it um but then if I have another 15-man unit kind of sitting shrouded back, back and still holding center board, that presents some really difficult problems for you, right? right. It's, it's funny because I'm recalling a game that I actually lost recently, but that was uh, through some other stupid errors. But um, <laughs> no, the, I think the list design is sound, and also you know the, the, the smite output just can't be um, written off. And especially when I have a Warlord Terminator Sorcerer who gets plus one for his Warlord trait and plus one on his first cast. And then if he's near two other psychers, I can spend one CP to make him a plus four to cast. So, you know, a a big part of what makes this list work is that Aiden and I were looking at what are all of the reasons why we lost particular games. Almost number one on that list was failed warp time or failed a key psychic power. And then, okay, so how do we build in redundancy where that's statistically extraordinarily unlikely or just not statistically possible to happen? So you build in something like one psyker who's going to be casting a dedicated warp time at a plus four to cast. So, you know, you have some reliability there. Um, You know, eliminators killing your characters was another top reason. So we made sure that they had Terminator armor and that they could be healed. And so they could be in particular situations where like anything aside from Raven Guard uh, eliminator spam was going to have a really really hard time lifting these units oh yeah like i i think i sacked uh i did like a kamikaze commander strike on you and i had to put like all my shots in the like it into one guy you know just to get him off the table so i gotta be honest with you man i i (laughs) it is so hard adjusting to a chaos list where i don't have the forbidden gem that is the slanesh relic that shuts down an enemy character within 12 inches um oh i forgot about that 
Yeah. Dude, you can just you just you can just play 40k with such impunity when you have the forbidden <laughs> gem. Like like you just like yeah, sir, send a smash captain. That's great. You'll you'll kill him. You know you'll feed him to me for free. And like I, I that's actually a game I lost against Zach, another one of our uh, team members. Like it all started falling apart when I forgot to box out his. Um, what is it, the solitaire? Because again, I was just like so used to having the gem, so I can get kind of reckless, like oh yeah, pat, like you know, with my character bubble once they're inside my uh, my screen. So yeah, man, there'll be a lot to learn about this list for sure. Yeah, and for anyone that doesn't know, the solitaire puts out like ten or twelve attacks or something by itself, so it can really like wreck you if you're not careful. Oh my god, yeah. the thing I learned in that game: do not Overwatch that guy. Like, because I scored like two hits on Overwatch, I was like, oh whatever, I'll plank him down, and I didn't realize he had like he has a strat or some ability that when he gets wounded he adds attacks so like definitely forfeit overwatch on that guy (laughs) unless you're reasonably sure you're gonna kill him oh yeah so with that said um obviously you won the rtt but how how do you feel that the list did Uh, like did it perform near expectations and obviously you know you've already told me that you're gonna change some stuff but like do you think you're gonna change it much more is it going to evolve more over the next you know couple weeks yeah that's a good question i think i think it'll like any good 40k list that'll continue to evolve i'm really happy with where it's at especially for mono zinch like i won't i won't even pretend like the the chaos soup variant of this double possessed bomb list is like way way stronger um but uh, again, you know, I like the limitations. Uh, I think going for Monozinge presents me with a different challenge this season, so I, I like that idea. So yeah, I think for the for the time being, I'm going to stick with it. Um, now th- there is a lot of proof of concept that needs to happen around Space Marines and particularly Grey Knights. Um, a lot of it is just me talking with Jason and Sam. Um, God, it, it is painful to call Sam a Grey Knights player, but uh, talking with like Grey Knights <laughs> players like Jason and Sam and like trying to hash Wait, out like he... how that matchup would shake out. Did he switch over to? Grey Knights? I, so I'm not going to do him the disservice of calling him a Grey Knights player. He is, <laughs> yeah, he is one a, of the best Death, Death Guard players I've yeah, ever known and probably on. in the world. But uh, <laughs> he's he's experimenting with Grey Knights and wants to do something new, so he's giving that a whack. Okay, well, we can't uh, fight him there, you know what I mean? You but know, we could certainly fight him there, if you know. If, <laughs> if, any, if anyone's deserved a break with a top-tier <laughs> army, I think it's Sam. Dude's just been, like, riding, like, ride or die with Death Guard for God knows oh, yeah. how many and years. He, and he does well with them. And if people, He really does. You know, and we, I, we have talked about Sam on this podcast before he's excellent dude and one of the El- or the nova judges right one of the guys that like i think helps- i think he's head nova judge at this point yeah like and he helps that you know he's one of the guys that makes that tournament run so props to him and i you know hopefully he'll like get to play in his own tournament sometime i don't know if that's gonna yeah. happen but <laughs> um yeah that would be nice so um like also one thing i wanted to ask you is like and one of the things that Tim wanted me to ask you is how do you now before a match, like how do you picture your list working and what's your plan going into it? Um, obviously, you know, you've kind of said that a little bit, each list and especially your list has an identity and certain jank as, as we like to say involved. And like, what are the type of factors that you think about when you, you before each, each game, right? Yeah. Um, it's funny, I, I made myself a little note in my phone because I think sometimes, especially in like round two or three of a tournament when you're getting like like flustered or just like getting exhausted, it's easy to forget like the questions you should be asking yourself at the beginning of the game. So like the note in my phone says something like, what is your plan to win? Uh, what is your opponent's plan to win? And how can you disrupt his his plan to win? And and those are questions that I like try to ask myself every turn, but especially at the at the like start of a game when you show up to a table and you can look at generally if you have familiar, familiar 
familiarity with someone's army, you can look at their army and get a sense for what they're hoping to accomplish, either how, what they're hoping to kill, how they're hoping to not die, or how they're hoping to consume and own the table. Um, and uh, and then obviously when they pick their secondaries in ITC, you can have like a much like stronger picture of how they're hoping to win the game. And then it's just a matter of how do I disrupt those plans and make sure I disrupt them enough and succeed with my own that I, I end up with a points victory. Um, you know, it's funny that like uh, oftentimes, like especially with Possessed Bomb, the, the strategy to win a game is to just not die. It's just to go park in the center board. Um, you know, it's worth saying another thing this list is is. Um, is really awesome at is just scoring points for doing the bare minimum. Uh, the, so the list can go and park in center board and keep the possessed shrouded either by rubrics or even other possessed with a three up invuln and a six up um, feel no pain and minus two to hit are a really great screen for other possessed, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. um, so they go park in center board and then you can take something like recon and, and capture recon very easily. Um, also the list has four of those dark acolytes because they are multi-model units. And so having both of those uh, units of two acolytes, which are untargetable when they're near, um, when they're near uh, uh, apostles, and they're also untargetable by snipers because they're not characters. All of a sudden, now I'm holding center board, and for doing literally nothing, I'm scoring eight points on secondary for recon and king of the hill because king of the hill rewards you for having two uh, multi-model units within six inches of center board. Um, so, so all I need to like kind of similarly to uh, top meta list right now. It's very much like as you said before, denial list. You can kind of mm -hmm. park in the center of the board and force your opponent to kind of play around your game a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're and if you're forcing your opponent to be the one to make the actions, like you're you're giving him the opportunity to make mistakes. You're not putting yourself in the position where like where you could make a mistake. And oftentimes, especially in a list like this, if he leaves me one little opening, that gives chaos a lot of a lot of leverage to just like twist the knife and really make really punish him for it. Oh, yeah. Usually it's like a, <laughs> some kind of ritual knife too, you know. Right. I, mean, it's got a little, I was gonna say that felt like a glyphs. fitting metaphor, yeah. actually. <laughs> <as soon as> I... <laughs> um, so I just got a few more questions. I know we're kind of sure. running out of time, but uh, for um, other players out there, if you were to design a counter to your list, like what's something like does is it the Imperial Fist list that really hits you hard? Like what what is like a, a good counter to your list? That's a great question. I think I just naturally Grey Knights is a counter to that list. I think um, kind of pure Grey Knights, especially. Um, and I think that list, depending on depending on how I can fine tune this list to, to be able to deal with Grey Knights, I think those matches almost like 90 percent of the time will probably come down to player skill. Um, I uh, I think that that's a really hard counter. Um, you know, that's a no-brainer, though. I think Imperial Fist can be a really hard counter. Um, <laughs> some Imperial Fists lists actually have the ability to kill, uh, like, 80 chaff models and uh, and then still shoot at my rubrics or uh, shoot at my uh, possessed at the top of turn one, right? So, like, there are, some, there are some lists that are just so shooty that, like, they can get through that insane horde and then start chipping away at my key units, which takes away a lot of the tricks that I have to survive that. So turn one can be important in those matchups. Generally speaking, my list likes going second. Um, so I think those can be bad matchups. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I'm going to learn about some other bad matchups. I think the the thing that really sucks about mono Zinch is having to rely on wrapping units and not having the mirror around to wrap units late game is, is really, really difficult. So all of a sudden, even something like a balanced Necrons list presents really unique challenges that just didn't exist for me before. Right. Because everything in that army has fly. Right. So 
my goal then is to make sure I'm killing enough and I'm killing the right units that are actually going to threaten me like long, long form in the game. But I kind of lose that denial potential because I just have no way to truly escape his shooting phase unless I'm actually destroying models. And so, um, you know, I think there's some weird matchups that exist for this list that are like probably bad for it in a way that like other lists, you know, like Necrons aren't in a really great place right now. Like they're decent, but, um, you know, they're certainly like not good by most standards. And so I think that like this list has some weird bad matchups probably. Right. You know, it's, it's funny, like when you're talking about that Necrons game, it made me think about, and I was, I actually was wandering around watching the, the tables and watching the stream the other day and your game on stream with Necrons. And I saw like a moment of genius that you had where like normally you would just like wrap up the, the Necron uh, uh, Doom Scythes, I think they're called, the croissants. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the croissants, with the, yeah. With, with the mirror. The Doom croissants, yeah. yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, with the mirror, and, you know, since a mirror prevents anything from falling out of combat, you know, they just blow up. But right. um, since you lack that resource, you were able to Dark Matter Crystal the Rubric Marines and uh, Daisy Chain them out to... A, like kind of remove space on the board for the flyers to go and your opponent had put them in such a way where if they made a turn they had nowhere to fly right 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 so yeah no and that's that's a good point and it's a good illustration of why i like you know putting limitations in lists because it, it forces you to think a little bit differently about the resources that you have and um you know honestly that i think eric played that game very well and he's an incredibly strong necrons player but um, it's, I think it's just one of the inherent weaknesses of that list. It's like when you need to do that, like mortal wound bomb that those three flyers do, and they only have a 24 inch range, that means those flyers are going to be close together and they're going to be pretty far up the board, which means that they don't have a lot of places they can fly the next turn. And so if you have some giant deep striking brick like that, like it's actually pretty easy to just blow them up because they've got no place to land next turn. And that in most cases, like even if, even if you had killed the rubric Marines because of that move, I'm like, that's still an amazing trade for me because now my characters are safe and I got kill three, you know? They're like Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman. They just got no place to go. <laughs> no you <know>? place. <laughs> uh, oh, they're going to kick me good. out here. I need right. to <laughs> my games from now on. <laughs> um, so one, I think, uh, you know, one last uh, little bit of advice you can give here is like what can you what kind of advice can you offer players that are just getting into competitive play um and maybe maybe have had a hard time breaking into such a skilled meta right because right now it's yeah. it's so competitive not just not like people's attitude but just their their skill level you know what i mean yeah, people tough, are incredible man. yeah people are people game. are good at this game yeah. dude yeah <laughs> people are for sure good at this game um i i think uh i think the best advice i can give is um I don't know. It's like I'm I'm really grateful the way Sam introduced this game to me or in, introduced competitive play to me because I think that like really like it, it's really important to have people that and it's the reason why I love Dumpster Fire, man. It's the reason why we've got such an awesome team. It's like if you have a community of people or even just a good friend who is also into competitive play and is better than you or knows the game better than you um, – really seek them out and seek out mentorship and like, and develop a cool like working relationship with that person where you can kind of like stretch your mind and put yourself in a position where you have to dig yourself out of corners. Um, you know, fall in love with losing, right? Like fall in love with what losing teaches you about like how to, how to think like better and how to be, um, you know, how to, how to be more mindful on the table and think farther in the future. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I think it's I think it's about the best advice I can give is just like think about what makes you happy in this game, and think about how competitive play can can you know uh, ac- accelerate that, and then just dig into that, man. For me, it's all about like it's all about having my back up against the wall and like looking at games that I think I, I really have no chance of winning and figuring a way out of it, you know, and that makes for a really positive experience and that makes me really enjoy the game. And so, you know, ultimately that's what it's all about and enjoying the game will make you win games and it'll make you better at it. So yeah, I think it's the best advice I can give. I think that's the best advice anybody can give, you know, that's beautiful, yeah. man. I'm tearing up over here. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really emotional <laughs> podcast. I don't blame you. <laughs> I'm, I'm shaking. I'm crucial. Right I think that's a great place to end it. Um, I want to thank you for staying way past the time that we had discussed. I think we've all good, like man. I'm, I'm sorry to talk. I'm sorry to talk so much. I just, I love, uh, I love this stuff so much. It's easier for me to go on and on. So thanks oh, no, for, thanks for having we me. Appreciate dude. it. That completes this segment. Uh, we'll be back. section six we're done with episode 30 season four we hope you enjoyed it as always let's wrap it up with the chosen this is cool stuff related to the hobby that we found and wanted to share the existence of with our listeners i had mentioned in the first segment of the episode that i'm still enjoying the beast arises novel i'm still kind of all about that um i do recommend them at least the first couple they seem to get the most attention from people talking about books within the hobby people that i've spoken to do kind of fall off after book six but i have found it a really enjoyable read i like the fact that it focuses a lot on the black templars i had forgotten in the midst of reading all those horace heresy books that you know black templars of course are a successor chapter to the imperial fists um they are following the guidance of Sigismund, which was the former first captain of the Imperial Fists under Dorne, who saw the Emperor's Divine Light early on, back when seeing the Emperor's Divine Light was a really bad thing to talk about. Um, so just to read about the, the religious zeal of the Black Templars, especially there is this... Um, there's a dreadnought who is who has never been put to sleep since the heresy, who's always remained in active duty, who has like his own... He's still playing the role of a leader within the... Uh, black templars and he's just insane like he's just (laughs) he's just like so (laughs) stoked about the emperor being a divine being it's like that super religious like second cousin or like estranged aunt that might join you for a holiday and like (laughs) and like can do can do nothing but talk about like whatever religion they're involved in for like the entire affair you know this is that dreadnought and it's really it's really great it's really (laughs) that dreadnought here he comes again again, yeah (laughs) i mean depending on how old your aunt she might be a dreadnought. Might be a dreadnought. You know, <laughs> but but I'm, I'm, I'm still really into those. Another thing I wanted to mention was that to read uh, that short story, I normally don't uh, normally don't get into ebooks too often because of this weird thing I have with my eyes. But I found this app called Lithium for my smartphone, which has a number of different settings to make the text uh, easier to read, I've found. And it's a nice, the interface is really clean and it's free as far as I can tell. So the Lithium uh ebook app is what i'm going to continue to use to uh, to check out the uh, the digital side of these books that we're going to read for the show yeah hey, I, I want to ask you really quickly like so i downloaded from black library yeah the epub yeah because I, I want to be able to read it on my computer and my iphone okay um because you know if you download it on the iphone it's specifically an iphone thing so you have to right. leave it on there right so and but when I was reading it, I don't know if you, this happened in your copy of it, but like the text would change 
font, like without, and it, it would change to like an italicized, like squiggly font without it. Like it wasn't like a section of the story where there was like the character was like thinking, so they had to change it to italicized or the you know hmm. it was pertinent to what was yeah. going on. It was just randomly like in the middle of a sentence would like change. Now, Carlo, font. was that yeah. before or after you were drinking? <laughs> No comment. <laughs> oh. Where did this bottle of sake come <laughs> So the, the only stuff that appeared in italics in my EPUB version were some of the flashback parts. Uh, the rest of it was okay. Um, okay. That might just be the that just might be the software they're using, really. Yeah. Maybe. The only the only kind of strange issue that I ran into was that I could have sworn and this might be my weird eye issue, but I could have sworn that the whole that I know it's not a scan of a printed book, but it looked like it was kind of askew, as if it wasn't perfectly lined up with the scanner at some <laughs> points. Like I don't know why that's probably my eyes, but even, I'm looking at it now on my phone, and it looks like it's slightly like to the left, like the whole page, like four or five degrees off. It's probably not. It's probably my eyes. I don't have very good eyesight, but it looks like... Do you think we should have asked Ben to type it out first? Yeah, right. Uh. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's right. Cool. Um, so what do, what do you gentlemen have for our chosen section here on episode 30? Would you like to go first? Yeah, let, well. me, let me go first. You know what? I, I want to talk about um, just the whole space of fiction and Warhammer 40K. There's a lot of games out there that have a lot of mechanics, has men have miniatures, the whole nine yard. If you're not engaging in some of the fiction, you're missing a level of flavor for the game. And you know, when you're playing with other players who understand the fiction, who are have engaging in it some level, they have a deeper enjoyment. Now, I've been playing 40k for years, but I would say at the end of seventh, beginning of the eighth. That's when I really started reading the fiction hmm. and understanding the universe. It really does enhance the game. So, uh, you know, I, I purchased all the Psychic Awakening books, and I'm reading the lore, and I'm reading other things, because it gives you a, a broader flavor for the whole Warhammer 40K experience. Now, often, that experience is not translating on the tabletop. But as they tweak the game, as they move it forward, you feel it moving closer to the narrative and it really feels good um and i I tell you if you're not engaging in some of the fiction and and some of the materials that talk about the why and what's going on in the broader galaxy it's not like a board game it's not like a chess there's a, a chess or anything like that there is a whole narrative that goes on with the game and it really feels really really good to at least dabble in it and enjoy some aspect of it yeah, I totally, I, I totally agree. It's such a big, such a big part of my own hobby experience is the narrative, and I, you know, I'm always keen to encourage others to embrace that part of the hobby too. It's and even, even like myself in the last six weeks, right? Six weeks, right? I've had very little time for gaming. I've had very little time for building or painting. So at the end of every day, and at, you know, every couple of even a couple of evenings a week before I crash, that's my foray into the hobby, right? That's when I can take those 25 minutes and you know, immerse myself back in the world for a bit, you know, back in, back in 40k, just to get that, you know, just, just to, you know, what's the expression, you know, just, just to scratch that itch, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great call. Carlo, how about you? What do you have for us here in The Chosen? Mm. Well, I've been listening to, again, a lot of 
competitive podcast, and I've actually subscribed to, and it's actually very popular right now, is uh, Nick Nanavati's Art of War podcast. Mm. Um, so these guys, uh, and if you're a competitive player, you absolutely know who I'm talking about, but they went to go play for an esports team actually down in, I think, Florida, if I uh, know correctly, and he carried his um, kind of brand down there and they've been putting out a podcast for a while on um where every episode they'll interview a competitive player and a lot of the times it has to deal with you know maybe who won an event most recently definitely a gt winner um they you know a lot of interviews with richard siegler this year because he won itc in pretty much every event in it and uh he's actually part of that podcast now mm, yeah. so but i think it's like um you know not the plug another podcast on our podcast but i've been really enjoying that lately yeah no that, that that's worth plugging especially for you know players who aren't in the competitive scene a good foray into that world is to know the personalities and the people within it and how they're playing exactly yep and you can really um appreciate some of the intricacies of the game quite a bit more uh and these guys are able to teach you those intricacies right so um, yeah, it's a great call. Cool. With that, we will wrap up episode thirty, the first of season four here at the Crew Shaken Warhammer Forty Thousand podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned this season. We're going to try to do shorter episodes more frequently. We're going to try to do more interviews with people of significance here in our local scene and from around the country. For Crew Shaken, I have been Tim. I'm Laval. I'm Carlo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.